Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Good evening, children of the night. We're continuing on our road trip south for the summer. Just before we hear a little bit about a well-known American tourist destination, I'd like to remind everyone that our 200th episode is coming up quickly. We've got a handful of listener-suggested classic stories that we've had narrated and we'll be sharing to mark the 200th. But where are we this week? The Biltmore Estate. Many of you likely have been there. It's quite a well-known place in Asheville, North Carolina, the single time that I passed within visiting range of the Biltmore, the group I was with declined to visit, regrettably. I've included a link to their tours page in the show notes. George Washington Vanderbilt fell in love with the area that the estate stands, and his brothers and sisters had constructed summer estates, so he would have one as well. George was a member of the wealthy Vanderbilt family that had made their money primarily on this country's infrastructure with rail and steamboats. The house began construction in 1889 and lasted until 1896. The main house itself is still, to this day, the largest privately owned house in the country, coming in at just under 180,000 square feet. Its decor has few rivals at American opulence during George Washington Vanderbilt's life or now. The estate had been designed to be self-supporting with poultry, cattle, pigs, a dairy, and even a forestry program. The estate also had a village for employees. 
In 1985, the dairy was converted to the Biltmore Winery. In 2001, a hotel named The Inn on Biltmore Estates opened, and most recently the estate remodeled the winery and opened it as the Antler Hill Village Wen Winery. Considering the size of the house and its estate, for those who believe that folk may linger on after their death, it's hard to believe that such a place as this would not have accumulated a haunt or two. The primary stories are George and his wife Edith. George may be spotted in his study at night, particularly during storms. Sometimes he is in the company of Edith herself. A guest might see Edith on her way to call George back to a pool party that you may also be able to hear in full swing, despite the pool no longer being used at all. Aside from some rumors that the Biltmore family, George included, were members of the Illuminati or other shadow government entities, there really isn't a heck of a lot. Despite the age of the estate and the hundreds of people that have lived and worked there, it's hard to dig up even a murder or two. So, either it's one of America's safest places, or they're much better at burying the bones. Let's move on to our story. We have one for the evening, followed by a bit from our friend Sylvia Schultz with Lights Out. Our story comes from David Odell, who was born in Indiana, spent seven years in the military, and now resides outside of Austin, Texas, enjoying life in the depths of his fiction. A rather short bio for a rather longish story of about a half hour. Listen up for this one. There are demons. And when we hear from Sylvia, more demons. The story you'll be hearing from David Odell this evening is called Loop. He did let Tales to Terrify know that the story was accepted for publication by an e-zine, was published, then within a couple months, the e-zine went defunct. So, no link in the show notes for this one, I'm afraid. And now, David Odell's Loop. When the pastor said, life is like mud if you don't have Jesus, Jack realized something might be wrong. And actually, it wasn't Jack who noticed. Dad! Laura tapped his arm as she whispered. Didn't he already say that? Hmm? Jack leaned closer to her. He keeps saying the same thing over and over. Who? The pastor. It probably just seems that way. Jack patted her hand and smiled. Truth be known, he hadn't been paying attention. No, she said. He said the same thing four times. What'd he say? Jack asked her. Since she'd turned 13, he found that quite often, just humoring her made life easier. He said life is like mud if you don't have Jesus she said. Listen, I bet he says it again. He focused his attention on the pastor, a man he'd known for better than five years, a man he adored. But, consequently, this morning, a man he wished would shut up and dismiss everyone. He thought about Taco Bell. His stomach rumbled. He was too tired and too hungry, and the Texans were playing today. Lord forgive him, but he couldn't wait for church to end. He glanced at the clock hanging on the wall. 11.48 a.m. Could time go any slower? Pastor James sat down and spoke softly about the terrible choices we make. Wasn't that the truth? Jack forced himself not to look at the clock, keeping his eyes focused forward until he could no longer stand it and then glanced over. 12.07 p.m. Funny how time worked. When you wanted it to pass quickly, it seemed to stall in low gear. He stared down at his hands lacing his fingers together, watching them as if he found a new toy. Then he heard it. Life is like mud if you don't have Jesus. Laura hit him on the arm. 
See, she said. Oh, come on. He's probably just saying it again. Jack said and smiled. But this was a little weird. Something seemed strangely familiar, like watching a movie and then seeing something that made you think you might have seen it before. I don't think he sat down the last time, Jack told himself. He leaned over to Laura and whispered, Was he sitting the last time he said it? Yes. Her voice squeaked and he shushed her. She whispered, Something's wrong, Dad. He glanced around at the other people, most facing forward and listening. One little boy picked his nose and examined his finger. A young girl sat texting on her phone, sitting between her parents, her thumbs working faster than light with vigorous concentration. She had no idea that Jack was watching her. Kids and their damn phones shouldn't be allowed to use in church. He faced back forward a little disgusted, then glanced at the clock again. His breath caught in his throat, and for a frightful moment his heart stopped. 11.46 a.m. Okay, he said, this is weird. I know. Laura leaned forward and gazed around the room. Watch this. She stood up and clapped her hands and then yelled, Hey! Horrified, Jack reached out and grabbed her arm, yanking her down into her seat. Red warmth spread through his cheeks and ears, engulfing him like a black cloud. What are you doing? he hissed. He glanced around again. Thank God no one was staring at them. They can't hear us, Dad. Her mouth fell open, and for the first time he read the fear in her eyes. A simple gesticulation that said, Please tell me I'm dreaming all of this. That's crazy, you... But then he stopped and gazed around the room again. No one was looking at them. Not one person. No one had so much as shot a scowling glance in their direction. Pastor James just kept on talking as if nothing had happened. Nothing at all. Dad! Laura stood up again. Something is so wrong here. Look! She pointed at the people behind them. No one even knows I'm standing here. Her voice echoed off the walls as if spoken within a cement tomb. The first words that popped into his mind were, They're just ignoring you, sweetie. But that wasn't right and he knew it. His brain wouldn't let go of logic and he searched desperately for a reason. He was an engineer, for Christ's sake. There was always a logical reason. They can't see me, Dad. Would you sit down? He said, still whispering, though he wasn't sure it mattered. She plopped down and he noticed her tears. Jack reached behind him and tapped a man named Brent McAdams on the shoulder. He'd known Brent for years and Brent wouldn't think he was too weird. He didn't think. Hey, Brent, Jack said. Brent didn't move. Jack tapped him harder. Brent. Still nothing. Jack stood and touched Brent's cheek. Brent! The soft flesh of Brent's cheek dimpled where Jack's finger pushed on it. But the man still didn't acknowledge him. Now, who the hell wouldn't react if someone were pushing on their cheek? Jack turned to Brent's wife, Megan, a pretty young woman who sat with her hands folded in her lap, her eyes fixed on Pastor James, who was still preaching as if there wouldn't a man standing up in his congregation touching Brent's face. Megan! Jack yelled this time. Megan! Daddy, they can't see us! The skin around Laura's eyes was red. I'll work this out, sweetie. That's what he wanted to tell her, but couldn't. That's impossible. Jack turned back to Brent. Brent! Nothing. Not so much as a blink. He whirled around, nearly losing his balance, having to grab the back of the chair in front of him to keep from toppling over. 
He glanced over at the clock. 11.58 a.m. What the hell was going on here? He forced himself to breathe. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. His heart pounded. More than pounded, it hammered like an animal about to rip itself out of him. I've got to calm down. A logical explanation existed somewhere. But damned if he could come up with anything. Maybe if he called home and spoke to his wife. He dug his cell phone out of his pocket and flipped it open. He punched in the numbers and hit send. Nothing happened. He waited and still nothing happened. He pulled the phone away and stared at the face looking stupidly at the numbers he punched in. The clock in the upper right hand corner of the screen read 12.08 p.m. He looked at the clock on the wall again. 11.59 a.m. He stood there, his brain unable to process, unable to come up with anything that would allow him to do anything but stand there and look like an idiot. Daddy! Thor yelled from the front of the sanctuary, up next to the stage where James sat preaching. No one can see us! He stared at her. A sudden, insane urge to laugh bubbled up inside him and he stifled it with a fist, shoving his knuckles into his mouth and biting down. The sight of James preaching as his daughter stood unnoticed right below him, yelling was a hysterical, horrifying sight. Something one would only see in a dream. That's it. Wake up, sleepyhead. Daddy! Just dreaming, that's all this is. Am I at home in bed or sleeping right here in the church seat? Daddy, I'm scared. You're not dreaming, Jack, my boy. You're not dreaming at all. A strange, distant voice echoed through the room. Jack spun around, temporarily ignoring Laura, and faced the door at the back of the room. Dread swept over him as he stared at the dark silhouette standing in the doorway. Who's there? Jack yelled. He heard Laura cry and ask, Who's that? I ain't nobody you know, the dark man said. You in my world now. He paused for an eerie, quiet moment where nothing could be heard but Pastor James speaking, which had become irrelevant in the scheme of things. What's going on here? Jack heard himself saying the words, but they sounded silly, almost surreal, as if he were given into this dream and accepting it as reality. Another urge to break into wild laughter lurched into his throat, and he swallowed it back. The dark figure said, You in the loop, young fella. You both is. Ain't no getting out of it. Jack just stood there feeling stupid and lost. Just watch out now. There's some bad stuff in the loop. Stuff that'll kill you if you ain't careful. Loop's about to go round again, and everything's getting older. Jack almost asked what the man was talking about, and then it dawned on him. He glanced at the clock and saw it was 12.08 p.m. He was about to yell to Laura. She screamed, as Pastor James said, Life is like mud if you don't have Jesus. The clock read 11.46 a.m. He was sitting back in his seat, Laura next to him. Jack jumped up, his eyes darting around the room as if searching for a dangerous ghost. Brent and Megan sat behind them just like last time, both staring intently at Pastor James. The little boy picked his nose, the young girl punched keys on her cell phone. Laura stayed in her seat, her arms folded across her chest, crying and staring at the floor as if she expected it to rise up and swallow her. Let's go, Jack said and reached out to her. Where? She asked and took his hand. 
They didn't know for sure what they would do, but they certainly couldn't just sit here and wait for whatever happened next. Whatever that might be. Did this last forever? Would they grow old in here? He wondered what his wife and children were doing at home and what they would think happened. In the real world, had he and Laura simply disappeared? Were they asleep and in comas? Were they dead? No. Time never moves past 12.08 p.m. and never starts before 11.46 a.m. A whopping 22 minutes is what their lives had been reduced to. So did that mean his wife and children repeated what they did as well, that the entire world? Dizziness swept over him and his chest tightened, as if a giant hand were inside him, squeezing his lungs. He couldn't breathe. Daddy! Laura gripped his hand and he relaxed. Thank God for her. Thank God she was here with him. Yeah, sweetie, he said, suddenly feeling hot. It's okay. Let's go out in the foyer. Where that scary guy is? Jack hadn't thought of him as scary. At least not yet. He seems to know what's going on. He pulled her out into the narrow aisle and they walked quickly. Jack stole one last glance at the clock before leaving the room. 11.47 a.m. They had 21 minutes to figure this out. Either that or start all over again at 12.08 p.m. The door swung open and banged against the wall with an eerie echo, as if the air had somehow swallowed up the sound. Jack didn't think he'd ever heard a sound quite like that. Something's different in here, Laura said, coming to a stop and yanking her hand out of his. It looks old or something. She was right. It was different in here, but old wasn't the right word to describe it. His gaze shifted to his left, where three large picture windows gave a perfect view of the parking lot. There'd been sunshine when they'd come in, but now the outside was a dirty shade of gray, as if a major thunderstorm had rolled in over the top of them. Except there was no wind or rain. There was just nothing. He could see the outline of cars, but even they looked ancient. Ruined, he thought. Everything out there looks ruined. Don't go outside, Jack said. He didn't have a clue what to do next, but he for damn sure knew he wasn't going out there. I wasn't planning on it. She stood next to him, one arm folded across her chest and the other up to her mouth so she could chew her fingernails. You've got to find that guy, Jack said, breathing heavy, dangerously close to an all-out panic attack. Y'all didn't lose me. The voice rang out from a dark hallway ahead of them. Y'all can't never lose me. Jack didn't see anything but a dark corridor with a small light at the end. He fought a maddening impulse to run through it. I don't want to go down there. God help me. I don't want to do that. Because there was something else down there beside that guy and Jack knew it. Faintly he could hear its hoarse gasping, a wet sound that reminded him of what something dying of rotting lungs might sound like. He squinted into the darkness and saw two eyes, deep red like that of the devil, glaring back at him. Instinctively, he stepped in front of Laura, wondering if they shouldn't run back into the church sanctuary. You can't get away, the voice called. You got to face it. You ain't got no choice. Who are you? Jack yelled. His voice echoed. Something started to stink as well. Very subtle, like walking in the woods and catching the rancid stench of death. I'm the man that cleans up this place when someone gets stuck. The voice said. It happens sometimes. What, like us? You got that right, just like you. What do you mean, clean it up? 
Jack noticed something moving in the dark corridor, slithering on the floor. Those red eyes seemed to grow brighter, more intense. See, this here is just a point in time, but you done gone and got stuck in it. I got to clean you out of here, or the time can't pass. Stuck? How? Damned if I know, the voice echoed. Then laughter followed. Every damn person that's ever got stuck asked the same thing. I guess it's like getting a headache or having a tornado hit your house. I don't know why it happens. It just happens. Can't nobody explain why. But it's got to be cleaned up just the same. Why is it so gray outside? Laura asked. And it sounds weird in here. The voice laughed again and said, Ah, little miss, you got yourself a good question there. See, this time has passed, and it just keeps passing. Every time you go through a loop, this time gets older, farther away. Pretty soon, all that outside will be gone, as everything should be gone. What do we do? Jack took a timid step backward. You need to die, of course. That's when Jack noticed more movement in the dark. It no longer looked like one thing, but hundreds as if every shadow were filled with lurking monsters. Laura cried next to him. Let's go, Jack said and grabbed her arm, pulling her back into the sanctuary where Pastor James kept just right on talking. They ran to the front, scrambling down the center aisle. No one batted an eye at them. Dad, stop! Laura planted her feet and yanked her arm out of his grip. Where are we going? Jack looked back at the door and didn't see anything. Hopefully, whoever or whatever was out there wouldn't stay out there. Maybe we're safe in here. She cried and put her hand to her face. What are we going to do? We can't just stay in here. I don't know. A sudden urge to scream bubbled up inside him, just scream until his throat ruptured and blood spurted from his lips. No way was this shit really happening. But worse, he also felt lost and helpless. He remembered what the dark man had said about how the loop always gets them farther and farther from real time. Did that mean that every 22 minutes they got 22 minutes farther away, not from a place, but from a time? So if they'd gone through the loop seven times, that would mean that they were 154 minutes from real time. Technically, 154 minutes behind real time. How many times had they gone through it? He thought it might be six. He remembered Laura saying something about four times. When she called it to his attention, Jesus married Joseph. He couldn't remember. Jack looked at the clock, 12.03 p.m. They were about to go another 22 minutes into the past, a past that was crumbling. A thought popped into his head, and he nearly burst out in hysterics. Time travel into the past is impossible because there's no past to go back to. I may be the only person on earth who actually knows that. Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Mr. Wells. Focus. He had to focus. Listen, he said. He turned to Laura. That guy said we could get farther behind with every loop, correct? She nodded. Do you know how many times we've gone through the loop? I don't know. Try to remember. She splayed her fingers in the air in front of her and started counting them silently, mouthing the numbers, then said, Six, I think. I'm pretty sure six. Six or seven. I was thinking six, he said. That means we're... He did some quick math in his head, 132 minutes behind. Something danced on the edge of his brain, an idea, but he couldn't calm himself enough to grasp it, something he'd seen, 
You mean in the past? Her lip curled as if to say he was crazy for such an idea. He looked back down at the floor and spoke out loud. Yes, technically, I guess, in the past. Not the way I ever envisioned it. He ran his hand through his hair. Okay, so if we're 132 minutes in the past, how do we catch back up without continuing to go backwards? Something. Think. God damn it, think. What if we're not in here at the next loop? Laura asked, an idea forming in that brain of hers. He could read it in her eyes. You mean like out there? Jack pointed at the door. Yeah, she said. He watched her speak, noticing her hand shaking. 132 minutes is just over two hours. What if we try to catch up to the loop before this one? There must be a way to get back. He just stared at her, hoping she had an idea. He realized with numbed optimism that her thoughts were along the same line as his. They had to stop going backward, that was the key. But what if we can't? Laura kept talking. We're thinking of time as linear. What if it isn't? Sort of like Einstein's theory. He liked where she was going with this. But he couldn't believe it was coming from his daughter, the lover of pizza rolls and reader of Twilight. Something like that, she said. Only not light, just space. What if we could run back to it and catch it somehow? He mulled her words over in his mind. If we're losing time with every loop, then real time must be constant. His brain kicked into gear. If real time was a cement pole at the top of a mountain, and each loop was a step leading away from it, every time he took a step, you get further from the pole. What if he turned and ran back? She nodded. Which means, if there's a constant... It must still be attached to this time. As long as this exists. Otherwise, this wouldn't know how old it is. But what if... Her eyebrows furrowed. What if real time is moving also? Wouldn't it be moving forward? Then it would be variable, he said, and not a constant. She nodded, actually smiling. Because constant is static. It never changes. Exactly. If we get out of this, I'm going to worship the ground she walks on. Dear God, she's smarter than me. To do this, we'd have to figure out where the constant is still attached and run in that direction. We'd have to find it and make the run before the 22 minutes were up. How far is that? she asked. Her hands had stopped shaking. Talking about this calmed her. Jack realized that it was calming him, too. They were like two kids in a candy store. He shrugged. I have no idea. Suddenly, the thought that eluded him earlier slammed into his brain, crystal clear. We need to run down that corridor, the scary one. I think that's it. I saw a light at the end of it. Everything else looked like it was dying and gray, but the light at the end of that corridor was bright. Her eyes widened, and she shook her head. I think that's why that guy's in there, to keep us from going down there. He'll kill us. We have to try. Jack looked again at the clock, 12.07 p.m. As soon as the next loop starts, we're going to go. She nodded and took his hand. I love you, Daddy. I love you too, sweetie. A quick blip of light. Then they were sitting back in their seats. Life is like mud if you don't have Jesus, Pastor James said. Jack noticed there were deep cracks in the skin of the pastor's face. One of his ears had fallen off and was lying on the floor next to the leg of his chair. No one noticed, not even the good pastor. Everything was starting to crumble. This point in time was getting old. It was becoming ruined. Let's go, Jack said. 
They both stood and charged for the door. He didn't stop, he just put his hand out so he could shove the door open and keep right on running. Twenty-two minutes wasn't very long, and you had nearly three hours of time to catch up to. 154 minutes, that's how far behind they were. Two hours and 34 minutes. He'd never considered the distance measured in time before, and had no clue how long it would take to run back through each loop. More horrifying was the possibility that it may not work at all. But it felt right, and that's all he had to go on. His hand collided with the door and the wood busted apart like clumpy gray powder. Like burnt-up paper disintegrates into ash. Another loop, two at the most, and there would be nothing left here. Dimly, he wondered what he and Laura looked like right now, but then pushed the thought away. Keeping her hand tightly held in his, they ran for the corridor. He saw the light at the other end, like looking down a long train tunnel and seeing the white speck a million miles away. Stop! The voice thundered, echoing from the darkness. Jack stopped and swallowed hard against a dry lump in his throat. We've got to keep moving, he told himself. If we stop, we lose time. Daddy, I'm scared! Laura's grip tightened like a clamp, strong for a girl her age. He turned and looked at her. We can't stop, sweetie. Just hold on to me. He faced back to the corridor, took one last courage-building breath, and ran forward. A moment later, the screaming started. Laura's shill cry split the darkness like a sharp knife. Her hand slipped out of his. Laura! He turned to find her, but saw only darkness. Foolish man! The voice came from everywhere. Behind him, ahead of him, above him. This is my world, it said. That smell of dead and rotting meat filled every crevice. He gagged, then retched. Laura! He screamed. Hot vomit rose into his throat and he swallowed it back. That smell, that god-awful smell. Daddy! She sounded farther away, moving in the direction they'd just come. It was dragging her back, whatever it was. Jack saw shadows shuffle a few feet away and he dove, grabbing onto something, hoping against hope that it was Laura. He landed on his belly, his hand closing around a solid thing, an ankle, he thought. Scrambling to his feet, he felt something swoop past his face in a cool rush of air. He ducked and kept pulling. Don't let go, Daddy, she yelled. Thank God. In the back of his mind, he wondered why nothing had grabbed him yet. Why just her? But then he decided he didn't give a flying shit why. He just wanted to reach the end of the corridor. He felt as if he was running through thick mud, but he trudged forward. This world is crumbling. That's why it's so hard to move through here. Even the floor is turning to goo. He made it to the end of the corridor and stopped before crossing the threshold. Gazing through, he saw the doors to the church sanctuary. He knew without a doubt it was the prior loop. They'd caught up to the 132-minute loop. How long had it taken? He had to get back in there and look at the clock. Just before he burst through the end of the corridor, the entrance filled with the ghostly shape of the dark man. Damn, but you sure is persistent, the dark man said. I wish I could just let you pass, but I can't. Why not? Jack pleaded with him. Please! Because that ain't my job, mister. It just ain't. I got to do what I got to do. And right now, I got to get you back to that last loop. Jack stormed forward. Maybe the dark man would kill him, but by God, he wasn't going to go down easily. He let go of Laura's ankle and charged, yelling like a maniac. Just as he reached the dark man... Tried to grab a hold, his fingers grasping for anything that might give him an advantage. To hell with this guy for trying to keep them there. And just like that, he found himself lying on the floor of the foyer, still yelling, still clutching. 
but there was nothing, nothing at all. Laura stumbled out after him. Her face looked to be covered in some sort of gray mud. Daddy! Where is he? I don't know. She looked back behind her. I don't think he can actually touch us. She looked shell-shocked. I think I was stuck in the mud or something. Jack got to his knees, then hoisted himself up to his feet. Maybe she was right. Maybe he couldn't touch them because they weren't actually from the same time as it was. Maybe the dark man was just another person stuck in a loop. But he'd never gotten out. Someone had gone insane in here. He looked at his hands and glanced over at Laura, whose face reminded him of someone who'd just witnessed a horrific car accident. If the dark man couldn't touch them, then that meant it couldn't stop them. So the only thing they had to do was get back to their time. Back to real time. The constant. Come on. He grabbed her hand and they ran into the sanctuary. Pastor James was still sat there preaching, just like always. But his ear was intact and the cracks on his face were gone. Jack looked at the clock. 11.50 a.m. He quickly did the math in his head. At 18 minutes and 6 loops, they had only about 3 minutes per loop if they were going to make it all the way back through before the 22 minutes were up. He wondered briefly if they ran out of time, if they'd go all the way back to where they'd been, or if they'd stay in the one they'd made it to. He didn't want to find out. It was time to run their asses off. We gotta run like crazy, he said. He let go of her hand and ran out of the sanctuary and into the corridor. He still heard the dark man yelling at them, but it was quieter, farther away. He ignored it. Running got easier as they passed through each loop. The floor became more solid. They ran through five corridors before stopping to check the time. 12.05 p.m. Run, he yelled. They were off again, passing through darkness and emerging in light. We're going to make it, sweetie, he yelled as they ran through the last corridor. Rushing out into the light, the bright sun splashed through the windows, and he raised a hand to shadow his eyes. Laura ran up next to him. People mingling in the foyer stopped and stared. As he and Laura walked quickly to the sanctuary doors, he heard someone say, Where'd they come from? They burst into the sanctuary, relishing the solid sound of the door banging off the wall with a hollow bong. He fell to his knees and looked at the clock, 12.08 p.m. He closed his eyes and took Laura's hand. Please, God, please. Jack, Laura, are you okay? Pastor James's voice echoed from the main speakers, and Jack opened his eyes slowly to find everyone staring at them. James stood at the front of the church, gawking with concern. Jack couldn't stop the tears, and he collapsed onto the floor. Most of the people in the congregation had gotten to their feet, several making their way toward them. One thing that went unnoticed was the fact that Jack and Laura were still sitting in their seats, totally asleep. As Jack watched in glorified amazement, the clock clicked at 12.10 p.m. It also went unnoticed that their sleeping forms in the seats slowly dissipated into nothing. A dark man stood next to the empty seats. A dark man that no one could see. Not even Jack and Laura anymore. A lurid smile stretched across the black skin of his face, revealing teeth too large and a tongue that slithered out onto the floor and back in. You got good on this one, you two did. One more loop and you was mine, it said. But I still got you. And you better believe that you're going to pay up for getting out of that place. That's my place. It turned and strolled lazily across the room, passing through the crowd of people and out into the foyer where it entered the corridor, where it waited. That was David Odell's loop as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah 
Kalanu Shepler, was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from University of Houston. He lives in the tradition of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan, and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is consequently a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propsman, and stunt coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales, and he is very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas and likes cats and dogs but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can correct that last bit by stopping by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jed. Next up will be another edition of Sylvia Schultz Lights Out. In the show notes will be a link to Sylvia's page where you can read more about her horror and romance books and short stories and also her book signings and other podcasts and TV appearances. And now, sit back and relax while we take in Sylvia Schultz Lights Out. Hello, and welcome to a very special edition of Lights Out. This is your host, Sylvia Schultz. I have been a paranormal investigator for several years, and I've been fascinated with the supernatural for pretty much all of my life. I've read countless stories of spirits, both benevolent and evil. I've been in plenty of spooky places. Sometimes I've had the comfort of other investigators with me. Sometimes I've braved the unknown by myself, but I have never felt myself to be in danger from any demonic entity. Other people are not so lucky. Join me for a frightening true story of demonic attachment. We'll meet Linda, a paranormal investigator who ran afoul of not one, but three evil entities. Hold my hand tightly as we go. Lights out. I met Seth. I met Linda several years ago while I was. Re- if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Researching the hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital. Linda shared the experiences she and her group, Central Illinois Ghost Hunters, had had at the asylum. We met at the Cantina, a bar in Pekin that has its own ghostly residence. After our talk, Linda went through the bar, pointing out paranormal hotspots and explaining the feelings of dread and sadness that bar staff had experienced in certain places in the building. For more information, I invite you to listen to the Lights Out show number 8, The Cantina. I was struck by the compassion Linda clearly felt for the souls of people who had passed on. Sometime later, Linda came to see me at the library where I work. She told me that she had had a terrifying experience. She'd suffered through a severe case of a demonic oppression in which three demons had attacked and tormented her. We sat down together, and she shared her story with me. The story began months before, when Linda founded the investigating group Central Illinois Ghost Hunters. Um, because I felt like that there were so many people that I was running into that were telling me that their children were scared, that they were terrified, mm. that things were happening in their house, that there was knocking, so that their child wouldn't sleep in their room, and that they had called their pastor, they had called their priest, and that no one would come. Either mm. they didn't believe them, or they were too busy, or they just didn't, you know, yeah. didn't want any part of it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, there's a need. There's, there's so many people out there that need help. And the, group, and the group that we put together, we were very blessed in that we had the right mixture of people. Uh-huh. Each one had a, a special, unique gift and a talent that, um, I don't know if separate, it would have gone as well as it did, but together and cohesive, we made an excellent group. Mm. You know? Linda and her group were very aware of the dangers posed by the occult. We began to find people lying to us. You know, like the first first questions that I would ask when we would before we would go into an investigation was, "Have you had anything to do with the occult? Do you do you uh, play the Ouija board? Do you have seances? Do you have you been involved in witchcraft or Satanism or, you know, blah 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 all the way down?" And the answer was always no, 
no, no, of course not. We didn't do anything like that. Uh, no. And so, but then when we were doing an investigation, we did one in Bartonville. Mm-hmm. And um, the la- lady's daughter, little girl, eight years old, could not sleep in her room. Mm. And the baby would wake up and cry every night, which mm. was upstairs. The little girl was down. The baby was upstairs. So when I walked into the little girl's room, it was like entering a vortex. Mm. It was like that. Have you ever felt that? Where it's like you walk into a room and it's spinning. And I mean, oh. we all felt it. We literally had to like touch the wall to, you know, to be able to catch our, our bearing for a second. It was oh, so, my. so strong in there. And I thought, no wonder. Time. Mm. But after we did that investigation, and I mean, the basement was just full of things full of, of people and things. Mm. And after we did that investigation, then the next day the lady called me and said, oh, by the way, I forgot that I had tarot cards in the drawer right upstairs across from the baby sleeps. Oh, man. <laughs> I said, oh, how can you just forget that? Oh, my. But that, you know. Well, be... if, she doesn't, if she doesn't concentrate on them all the time, yeah. if it's just a thing that she... Interacts with occasionally, it could slip her mind. I could yeah. see that happening. But still, when someone asks you, have you ever? Okay, yeah. Then she, yeah, then, you know, if I would have said, Sylvia, have you ever had, you know, and you would have said, well, yeah, yeah I used to, I or I do once in a while. Thought back, yeah. Yeah. It so designed that, to jog your memory. Yeah, yeah. right. And so, um, and then we went to a place in Metamora, mm-hmm. and uh, this was a place that literally made me sick. I have never physically gotten sick in a place before. And I didn't throw up, but it mm. physically made me sick. Mm. When there was the, the man um, that had called us in, I could not stand to be near him. He was like, he scratched my spirit. I don't know if you've ever run into anybody that mm. you felt like, oh, I don't want to be near him mm-hmm. or her. But it was like the sandpaper. Every time he would come within as close as you and me, I, I would want to... Just scream. That's an intriguing way for me <laughs> to describe it. Yeah, he would scratch. Me. Yeah, he would just scratch my soul. Okay. And so um, I didn't want him in my camper because we always took the motor home because we could all travel together and discuss sure. what we found. And yeah. yeah. Um, but but anyway, come to find out, we went downstairs in the basement. I mean, upstairs, I still had this eerie eerie feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time he was near me, it was like scratching my spirit. Mm. The whole place was just odd you know just had an odd feel to it that i have experienced yeah Yeah. and we went downstairs into the basement and as we were starting into the basement this god-awful smell that i've never smelled before literally made me nauseous Mm. and the funny part is that my group they smelled it upstairs they could smell something upstairs and i couldn't smell a thing (sighs) but when we started going to the basement i was so overwhelmed by this smell and they didn't smell a thing and, and, and I was thinking all the time, oh, my gosh, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to throw up in this basement. I'm going to throw up if I don't get out of here. Oh, no. And, and I literally said, I've got to go. And I, I ran up the stairs. I went out to the motorhome, and I still, for like an hour, you know, the whole time mm. they were in there, I smelled this hideous smell. Mm. Come to find out, this guy was practicing Satanism. Oh. The group was running into some pretty odd situations in their investigating. You know, we started running into strange people, mm-hmm. but I still didn't think anything about it. We had 42, 44 cases in one year. I mean, we were busy every weekend and sometimes during the week. Oh, gee whiz. Yeah, and, and what was happening was um, 
there towards the end, I could tell that the spirits, there was something different. Mm. Because um, when I would always say, turn off the light, turn on the light, Mm -hmm. they would do what I asked them to do. Mm -hmm. But then it got so that they were getting a little um, obstinate, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't turn it off as fast when Mm. I'd ask. And I started thinking, first I said, I think the spirits are getting stronger. But then it never dawned on me that I was getting weaker. Linda was staying out very late on Saturday nights, doing investigations, and she wasn't getting up for church on Sundays. She wasn't feeding her soul. We did that. We had another big case. Mm. And this one was in Pekin. Mm -hmm. And I had been thinking, I I had this feeling, and I should have listened to it. You know, but still, I believe that God knows what we're going to do from the day we're born on. We have freedom of choice Mm -hmm. and freedom of free will. But I believe that whatever we choose leads us down a different path. Mm-hmm. You know, if we make one decision, we go this way. If we make another, we go this way. Sure, yeah. And so I had been feeling like, you know, I really need to stop doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. The investigations weren't interesting me anymore. It was just the prayer part. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just wanted to clear the house out. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted whatever was there, be it good, to go home, mm-hmm. to be it bad, to go away. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that became my goal. I wasn't interested in answering, you know, the flashlights going on and off. And yeah. um, <clears throat> and so I, I felt like I needed to stop doing it two weeks before. Okay. Um, and I was going to actually give it to a member of my group named Beth. You met Beth. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, Beth, I didn't know, was having kind of the same feelings that she needed to leave the group. Mm. You know, she needed to leave the group. Mm-hmm. So the week before I told the group that I was leaving, Beth told me she was leaving. Oh. So I didn't have anyone that I actually, yeah, wanted to turn the group over with. Right. But before that happened, we went to Pekin. Mm-hmm. And this was another strange house. There was um, a lot going on there. There was, a, there was a, a dad and a mom and a little three-year-old girl and a baby. Mm-hmm. And there was her aunt... Uh, who was also very young. They're all within their 20s, you mm. know, living in this house. And this little three-year-old started seeing... Um, there was a place in the basement that was really creepy. I mean, really, it was, an, it was a circular thing. Hmm. It was really odd. Mm-hmm. It was in this old house, but it was dirt floor, but it had, like, stone circle around it. Okay. And when I started to open that door... I know I'm regressing, but when, no, I, started to, when I started to open that door, I felt the most weird feeling and I thought this is a gathering place this is this mm. is a gathering place well and this little three-year-old girl she would hear people call her to the basement Ooh. <laughs> yeah and uh, her parents she would go down there and she would work in the workshop with her daddy mm. and she'd always want to go in this room and they would never let her in there mm-hmm. thank goodness but yeah. but um, we went back there several times and I had a feeling that it had to do with voodoo, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and That's so what we usually find in central Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, yeah. and but but anyway, when I was listening to these EVPs, I actually heard a black woman like telling me, "Come on down, I'm waiting on you." Whoa! Yeah, see, but I couldn't hear with my ears. Right, right. But on the tape, I heard her say. So, yeah. (laughs) So when we went to do this investigation, we went in here, and I mean, she answered every question that we asked her. You know, I said, are you into, were you you into hoodoo or voodoo? Yes. Uh And I said, were you brought over here as a slave? I said, were you a slave? Yes. Mm. I said, did you practice your religion down here? Yes. 
Oh, man. You know, I said, Do you, are you wanting this three-year-old child for something? Yes. Hmm. You know, and I said, are you after her soul? Are you after her reincarnation? What, what, you know, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my. And the parents were standing right with me when this was going on. Uh-huh. Are you, were you asking these flashlight questions? Or yeah. Were, okay. Flashlight and recorder. We okay. had, everyone had a recorder. And this is what's so cool. This okay. was one powerful lady. Everyone had a recorder. And I, and I looked around the room. Every red light was on. Hmm. When we went back to listen to that whole comment, we were down there 30, 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. When we went back to listen to that, that whole section on Nobody's Recorder recorded. Ooh. It started at the top of the stairs <sighs> on the first and second floor. There was not one part of the basement. Oh, my. It was like it was totally erased from everybody's recorder. None. Nothing. Oh, my. Yes. Yeah. And I thought, holy cow. There was also a little girl upstairs, mm-hmm. and she and she would say, "Aw, I can't remember what she called this lady, Grandma or Auntie," mm-hmm. um, but she would say, "They can't see us; they're just kidding," you know. And I, and so that's that's where I got into trouble. But I, before I do that, I want to tell you about this little girl yeah, because the little girl got they would they would start showing themselves in the form of her dad. They would come in the middle of the night, and it would be her daddy, and he would say, come with me, honey, let's go down to the basement and play. Ooh. And this was on a Saturday morning, and um, this was not in the middle of the night this time. This was like, oh, maybe 8, 9 o'clock, 8.30, 7 to 8, because mm-hmm. the dad happened to be gotten up early and was laying on the couch watching, just turning on the cartoons. Mm-hmm. And he saw this little girl come downstairs, and she grabbed his hand, and she says, well, come on, daddy, let's go. <laughs> and he says, let's go where? He says, well, you told me it's time to go play in the basement. And he says, no, honey, I didn't tell you that. And she says, yes, you did, Daddy. You just stood upstairs. You said, come on, let's go. And she, he says, no, I didn't tell you that. So I told the parents, you know, I said, what better way? And the mother didn't believe. The dad was concerned. The mother didn't believe and until she saw the lights coming on. Uh-huh. But I told them, I said, what better way for something to grab your child if they can convince the parents that their child is in no danger? You know, I said, what does a child predator do? They get close to your child. I said, what are they doing? They're appearing to your child as someone she loves, her daddy, her, her caretaker. And, and what is the mother doing? They have blinded the mother to where there's no danger. You know, because so, a mother, you know, that mommy blood gets going, and you're, you would kill over your child. Right. But they were appearing in the form of the dad. And the mother, they had blinded to where she saw no danger. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, and then the aunt, the, the, when we came back to pray out that house, mm-hmm. the aunt, she says, Linda, can I show you something? And I said, yeah. She says, I keep hearing my uncle telling me to come to him, and he had died. Yeah, this house was strange. Mm. And she pulled up her arm, and she had cut herself all from here to here. Oh, poor and, girl. Yeah. But the thing is, on my tapes, it had said, let's get the aunt. Let's get the aunt. And the aunt was oh, 23 years old. That girl died. Within a month later, she was dead. I mean, she went out to the garage to smoke a cigarette. Her little girl came in the house and told her mommy, mommy, I, um, I mean, told her her aunt, I can't wake up mommy. Mommy's sleeping. Oh. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, can't, I won't say that that's what caused it. You know, that's far be it for me to do that. Yeah. But I'm saying, you know, that's, it's just, it was all weird. The strangeness continued on other nights in other houses.
when I heard the little girl say, mm-hmm. you know, they can't see us. They're just kidding, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> so then we went from, from there. And like I said, we had had 44, 42, 44 cases in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hadn't been fed. My spirit was weak. Mm-hmm. And we had just come home from this investigation at like, I don't know, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. We had a house cleansing that we had gone to before, and one of my one of my um, investigators got sick in this house and had to leave. Mm. And that was a phenomenal thing, and I and I think I might still have some of the EVPs of that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was actual a fight there for us. Mm. Yeah, you, and you could hear a sword, like a, literally a sword being pulled from a sheaf. Holy cats! Yeah, yeah, it was cool. <laughs> I love- anyway, uh, in this in this house. My my friend, my friend Debbie, she got really sick in this house and had to leave this house. But there was something. When upstairs in in the ladies' room, I touched. I would touch her. I touched her bed, and it was like a vibration. Have you ever done that? You could feel. Mm-hmm. And I said, "They sit on your bed." I said, "They sit on your bed." And she said, "Yeah." She said, "That's right where I've seen this thing sit at night and look at me." Oh, and her husband has had seen it too, and you know it gives me creeps even thinking about that thing. Right. Okay, and then the third house that we went to, mm. this house was in. Um, okay, what, what what was sitting on the bed in the second house, habitually? I think it was just a dark, ugly little thing. Okay. Whatever you want to call them, an imp, um, whatever you want to call them, a dark, ugly, nasty little thing. Okay. You know that would torment her. He would torment her. He was mm. a tormentor. Okay. All right, third house. Okay. And this is the one we went to. This was outside of town, and I cannot think of the name. I don't want to say Mackinac. Maybe it was right outside of Mackinac. Okay. But when you drove up to this house, these um, these kids were doing weird things too. They were having like seance in this in this house. Mm-hmm. But when you walked into this house, you had this really oppressive feeling, just really oppressive. And the people had had, and these were business people. I can't give you their names. No, no, that's confidentiality. But they were really well expected in there. They had a sliding glass door, and something banged so hard on their sliding glass door that it actually cracked it, and there was no one there. Mm. There was no one there. And when we were asking that, we were asking, you know, were you the one that broke this door? Flashlight went, yes. Yes. But in the, on the EVPs, it was saying, get out. You know, get mm. out. And so when, when we went into the kitchen, we went through all these different rooms. The flashlight, of course, went all every place. The recorders were going. The videos was going. But the homeowner actually saw, I could feel something go by me to the basement. Just And we'd already been in the basement. But the homeowner saw it. She saw a shadow. She goes, oh, did you see that? Did you see that? I saw it go in the basement. Oh and, and so we, we all went down after it to, to, you know, to try to make it leave. Yeah. But when we came back to actually do the house cleansing of this house, when I walked in this house, there was, for one split second, I saw something very tall, like as tall as that door, mm. dark. And I don't know how to explain it. This sounds totally insane, but it kind of looked like a figure of a bat, you know, like um, the, the figure's... Um, the shoulders were, were angled, okay. and I don't know if it had like a robe like this, you know, holding a robe, or if that was just its shape, mm-hmm. but for one second I saw it, one second it was gone. Oh. You know, or furled wings or something. Maybe, something oh. weird. And then the homeowner told me that the mailman uh, actually had seen a creature similar to what I described, and it scared him so bad he quit. He quit his route. 
because they lived in in this rural, and I think it's Mackinac, if yeah. I remember right. Uh-huh. Um, but but he actually it's terrified him, and he quit his his route. One July evening, Linda came home very late from an investigation. She was hot. She was tired, and her defenses were down. But anyway, I stood in the middle of my living room floor and I prayed, Father. You know, I think that I could help them more if I could hear them. Please let me hear them instantly. This was like, um, like I said, to say it out loud almost sounds insane, insane, but it is the actual truth. I heard like a bell. You know those little bells like you hear in church when they, um, a Catholic church where they go ding, oh, sure. ding, ding. Yeah. I heard a bell. Ding, 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 ding. Ah. Let her hear. And then I started hearing two male voices and a woman voice. There were three of them. And they started tormenting me day. They were tormentors day and night. I could not sleep. My poor husband, he did not know what was going on with me. My children didn't know what was going on with me. But, I mean, it was like somebody screaming in my ear, and they were saying, I want your soul. You know, and then mm. and they started telling me things that I had done from the beginning of my life all the way up. Mm. That's what I'm saying. This is, is the strangest thing, and I think God let me see all this for a reason. Maybe t- for you, you know, too. But but they started telling me things that I had even forgotten. Things mm. that, you know, you did this, you did that, you did this, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Mm. You know, oh, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> and, and I started on this journey. I mean, I, I called a man. I don't know if I still have his phone number, uh, but somebody told me that there was an exorcist uh, up in Wisconsin. Mm. And I would call him on the phone in the middle of the night. He'd say, call me. And he would say prayers with me. Mm. And then he would ask me, what are they saying? And I, t- and, and I said, they told me that you're not a real exorcist, that you, you were not or you're not an ordained minister. Mm. And he says, it doesn't matter if I'm ordained. They knew. They knew. You know, that's what I'm saying. They know the supernatural realm knows far more than what we could ever know. Uh-huh. I, and and to know that now, I mean, I actually know that. And my son, my poor little son, I was telling him, I was saying, uh, he told my mom, because my daughter had called him, because I said to Ned, excuse me one minute. I went into the restroom, and I, I just started praying, mm-hmm. because these things were screaming at me while I was trying to talk to my daughter. Oh, and uh, I went in the restroom, and I just started praying, God, I lay my, you know, you say we are saved by the word of our mouth and the word of our testimony. And I said, I love you, Father God. I choose you, the Father and the Holy Spirit. I always will choose you. I want no other but you. And that is a word of my testimony. And I wrap it up, and I lay it on your holy altar. Mm-hmm. Because you say, whatever we say goes right into your throne. Mm-hmm. And I said, so, Lord, I lay it at your feet. I only want you. I only want you to help me through this. And, I mean, I would cry. I would beg, you know, Lord God. And I would, you know, just... And my daughter was concerned. She went and called my son, mm-hmm. who's very logical-minded. This is my young child. He's an entrepreneur, businessman, very logical. Ah. And he's, he says, Mom, I'm, I'm a little concerned about you. And he says, um, you think you need to go to a psychiatrist? Mm. I said, Bobby, I said, if, you, if your little child broke his leg, would you take him to a gardener? <laughs> no. I said, I don't need to go to a doctor. I need to go to a spiritual help. I said, this is a spiritual battle, and I need to find help within the church. I went to... This was the beginning of months of torment. 
Linda sought help from an exorcist in the Quad Cities. She went through two exorcisms, but they made no difference at all. She wasn't possessed. She was suffering from demonic attachment, which is quite different. Who is the exorcist for the Diocese of Rock Island? Ooh. He is retired, and I went to see him twice. Mm-hmm. And I would tell him he would read me. He would read from the book, and they would be screaming, you know, in the background. And and I would tell him, but yeah. he couldn't hear it, but you could. Okay, I could hear it, because it was me that they were attacking. It was right. me that prayed. It was me that God was taking on this journey, you know. Yeah. But I would tell him everything that they were saying, and he was amazed too. Mm-hmm. But I said, I am not possessed. I said they are not possessing. Excuse me, possessing me. Uh-huh. I said they are oppressing me. They are around me. So the right of the right of exorcism wasn't working. It's not going to do anything. They're not in me. You know, they are around me. Yeah. And they did not know what to do with the fact that they were around me. Yeah. Linda's search for help continued. I kept trying to find help. I had an old prayer partner. His name is Dictor. And um, he's been with me on this whole, this whole journey. Mm-hmm. And I would call him and say, Dick, please pray for me. I don't know what, I can't stand this. I can't. They would wake me up in the middle of the night screaming in my ear, wake up. Come. You know, and I would jump up out of bed. And my husband would say, what are you doing? And I would be going, I can't stand this, Jerry. I can't stand this. And I would go call this guy up in Wisconsin. Yeah. And I'd say, Mike, you got to pray for me. you got to help me. Yeah. So he was helping me during this time. And I look back and I see that God had different people helping me along the way to lead me to the Abbey. Mm. You know, I had to be ready. You know I mean? I had to be ready to receive what I needed to receive. So he had provided me this guy named Mike. So then from there, I went to, I had a friend that was a counselor at Antioch Group, and she had been a missionary in China. And I called her, and I said, Donna, I said, I know you believe in these things. I know you've seen things on your mission trip. I know you know this is real. And that I'm not crazy that these things are really tormenting me. And I said, do you know anyone that I can go to that would pray for me and help me through this or give me direction as to what I needed to do? At that time, I was in a panic. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Lord says in, in his word, he says, do not be anxious for anything, but by everything with prayer and supplication, make your request be known for God. Mm-hmm. But that time... I mean, you got to figure. I got three people or things screaming at me all the time. Makes it hard to concentrate. I was in a panic. Yeah, I was in a panic. So I asked Donna, Donna, do you have anybody you know that can that can help me? Because I had been to seven priests, two exorcisms, and you know, and then I went to Donna, and this is how the Lord worked. Because Donna, bless her heart, had made a mistake, but that mistake led me to where I needed to go. But let me back up. First of all, I called Dick. And I said one morning, I was having a really bad screaming, I want your soul. We're going to take your soul. And and I called Dick. And I said, Dick, I said, these things are just screaming at me. And I said, I need prayer. And he says, honey, come over to where I'm at. I'm sitting over here working on a house with, with two other guys that are believers. Mm. And he says, come over here and we'll pray for you. Well, my husband wouldn't let me drive because I was totally, uh, you know, just, ugh. So yeah, he, drove me, he, dri- he drove me over there. Well, when we got there, they had a priest on the phone. And I was trying to tell this priest what was happening to me. And I got kind of hateful with this man because he says, you have a problem being quiet. And I said, as do you. (laughs) You know, because I wanted to, I had a chance for a priest listening to me. And I wanted him to hear I needed help desperately. Yeah. 
So in the background, you can hear these bells. And he says, I have to go now. I have to take care of my duties here. Mm-hmm. And I said, Father, don't forget me. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, Father, don't forget me. Yeah. So then I went to Donna, you know, and Donna says, you know, she emailed, emailed two different people that had been uh, ministers in, in, Viet- in Vietnam, mm. but neither one of them had emailed her back. So she called me back, and she says, Linda, I'm so worried about you. I'm praying for you all the time. And she says, you know what? She says, there's a little monk that comes in here every morning and says prayers for us. He dresses in brown. And she says, I think it's from the Abbey. So, and this is, this is kind of neat, too, mm-hmm. because they don't dress in brown. They dress in black. She had made a mistake. There was somebody that was coming in to pray, but it wasn't from the Abbey. Mm-hmm. But God had used that to lead me to the Abbey. So uh-huh. I called on the phone, and I said, this is Linda Hamburg, and I need help. I said, I need, I'm in a battle for my life, a spiritual warfare. And I said, I need help. And this voice on the other line, this is cool, this voice on the other line was very calming and not excitable, just very calming, and said, Come see Father Lewis tomorrow at 1 o'clock. And I said, okay, no accident, no nothing. Come see Father Lewis tomorrow at 1 o'clock. I said, all right, I'll do that. Well, I went to Mass that early morning because through all this, I started going to church every single day. I thought, I need my spirit fed. I'm in the battle for my life. I need my spirit fed. And so I couldn't sit still during Mass. I mean, they were screaming and screaming and screaming at me. And I told my husband, I said, Jerry, I cannot wait till 1 o'clock to go see this priest. I said, I don't care. He said, your appointment's not to 1. I said, I don't care. I said, if you don't want to sit there with me, drop me off. (laughs) I said, leave me there. But I can't wait. I said, I can't wait. I have to go now. I have to go now. You know, I just knew I had to go then. Mm -hmm. So when we pulled into this little abbey, there was this guy walking out with shorts on. And he was throwing his keys up in the air, just (laughs) walking to his car, right? And here, this crazy woman, I jump out of the car, and I run to this stranger, (laughs) and I said, I need help. I said, I have an appointment at 1 o'clock with Father Abbott, with with Father Lewis. But I said, I need help now. I can't do this. I need help now. And he goes, you go over to the church. He says, I will go get him. But he <laughs> stood there and looked at me for a minute. You know, and, but I didn't know he had a gift of discernment. He could see, he knew, he knew that these things were around me. Ooh. And this was the bishop. I didn't know I was talking to the bishop. Oh, my. So the bishop went into the house, and, if I, and this is where it gets really cool. And then Father Lewis met me in all in black, and I told him the whole thing. Uh-huh. And he goes, you're the one that said, Father, don't forget me. And I said, are you that priest? <laughs> and he said, yes, I am. And uh, he says, when you said that, he said, it went straight to my soul. And he said, I've never forgotten you. He said, I pray for you every day. He said, I have prayed for you every day. And so anyway, the bishop came, and he was dressed in his robes too. They took me into this little room off the side of his office. Mm-hmm. I'll take you out there sometime and show oh, you the do. Abbey yes. and, yes. and introduce you to the Father. I you know, would be very grateful. And the grateful. bishop. They would, be, they would love to talk to you. Okay. Um, but anyway, they took me to this little room off of the church, and I knelt down on this little table. And, and I don't remember much of this, but Father Lewis put his hand on my head, and the, and the abbot, I mean the uh, bishop, put like a cross on my head, mm. and they started praying. You know, and I was reading this prayer. They had given me this prayer to read. So I was reading this prayer, and my husband was sitting in the corner. Mm-hmm. And then the bishop says, Linda, there is a little boy that is attached to you. 
You know, he, 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 he loves your mother figure, your caring, your, your protectiveness. You need to tell him to leave, to go to the Father right now, that the Father will take better care of him than you ever could take care of him. Yeah. And so I said, go, honey, go, go to the Father. He will love you. He will take care of you. You will be with family that you've never known. You will be safe and loved and protected and never be afraid again. Me and the abbot, Father Lewis, audibly heard, thank you. Just like we had on the recorder, but this was out loud. We both audibly heard it. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, Did you hear that? I said, I did. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I know. And then, this is is another, this is how God has worked through this whole thing, and is still working. Yeah. About, oh, three, four months after I knew him, and we, we became real close. You know, it was like deep connection for all the prayers that they have helped me through because I mean it has been an ongoing battle with these things you know and they've prayed over me and with me and and just came out to the car and got me and prayed there in the car because these things would be talking you know and they pray and pray and pray and so anyway Father Lewis says Linda I think we're close enough I want to tell you something he says you know when you told me that you had an appointment at one o'clock that day he said I had a luncheon at one o'clock that day he said I didn't have an appointment with you and I, I said, I said, a man told me to come see you at one o'clock, but I couldn't wait. He said, well, if you would have waited, I would have been gone. And he said, I asked every monk in this place. No one had a phone call from you. I think I talked to an angel. I think I talked to an angel that was leading me to Father Lewis and the bishop at just the right time when the bishop was leaving. <laughs> you know, he was leaving, but I think I talked to an angel. I truly believe I did, and so does yeah. he. You know, because no one else was there. Oh, wow. The consequences of Linda's deliverance are still being felt today within her family. But there's so much in between all this that happened. Because of this, my husband became baptized. Because of this, we both became confirmed in the church. Mm. You know, because of this, my son in Texas is now becoming a believer. Because of this, my son Bobby sought his minister out that was in Morton. Mm-hmm. You know, that he, I think my mom's going loco and, and, and <laughs> because she thinks she hears these things that are wanting her soul. And the minister explained to him spirituality, so his growth has deep, deepened. Uh-huh. So the word says, you know, what, what is done... What the what they intend for evil, God intends for good. So He mm. turned all that evilness around for something good. Yeah. And not only that, then I can help people. You know, I always said I will never look at anyone who says they hear voices <laughs> the same way again. Yeah. You know, yes, I'm going to make sure they're not crazy. Mm. You know, that they're not schizo or you know, I'm you know, I want to make clear all that out. Like, why would God have allowed me to go through something so horrendous for over two years? Yeah, you know, but but it has increased my faith. It has made me. It has brought me um, to the realization that if this happened to me, that there are others that need help, and people yeah. aren't helping them because people aren't going to believe them. Yeah, you know, um, if I was a stranger and I walked up to you and said, "Silly, I'm hearing," you know, these things that are screaming at me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I definitely take to, it with a grain of salt. Yeah, there has to be a way of presenting this in a way that that. It doesn't scare people, but yet that they know it's real. Mm-hmm. You know, the Bible says, test and try the spirits. You know, we're not to believe every spirit. Mm. So, um, you know, I, there's so many things still going. It's a growth process in me, and, I, and, I can, and I'm a lifetime student anyway, so it's all right. I'm ready for a growth process. Yeah. But in the meantime, I'm thinking, 
I want to get the story out. I want to help people that are in dire need of help where people aren't being helped. Mm-hmm. You know, because people think, ugh, you know, they need to go to a psychiatrist. Oh, they, you know, they're just your imagination. There's- Thank you so much for joining me for this special edition of Lights Out. For much more on Linda's experiences, and for a look at a history of demons and exorcism, I hope you'll pick up a copy of Hunting Demons, published by Whitechapel Press. The book can be purchased on Amazon, and is also available at whitechapelpress.com or prairieghosts.com. And if you have questions or if you are experiencing spiritual troubles of your own, I encourage you to contact Linda at huntingdemons at yahoo.com. Again, thank you for listening. Join us next time when we'll kick off our author series. The amazing Tamara Thorne will return and share with us the inspiration for the ghostly novel The Cliff House Haunting. Other authors will feature in upcoming shows include Luke Naliborski, Alistair Cross, Ophelia Julian, and many more. They'll all be ready to share their stories with you the next time we go Lights Out. Thank you, Sylvia. And that will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.